Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. How do seashells shape our world, and what can they tell us about our future? I'm Benji Jones, an environmental reporter at Vox. And today, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. Think back to the last time you saw a seashell. Maybe it was by the ocean, poking out of the sand. Or perhaps it was at a restaurant, resting on a bed of ice. In any case, you probably didn't give it much thought. It's just a shell. But as it turns out, those shells, I mean seashells, have actually played a pretty major role throughout human history. In centuries past, for example, they helped grow entire societies and even corporations. And today, they help us big time by reabsorbing some of the climate warming carbon that we emit. And that's to say nothing of the creatures who make them which are fascinating in their own right and have some truly bizarre lifestyles. My point is, seashells are a lot more than just spectacles or vehicles for food. And if there's one person who can convince you of that, it's our guest, Cynthia Barnett. Barnett is an environmental journalist and the author of a new book called The Sound of the Sea. It's a dive into the history and science of seashells, which as the book lays out, have shaped human society in some pretty surprising ways. I walked away from it with a new longing for the ocean and a much better understanding of what's now at risk. Cynthia, welcome to the show. Hi, Benji. Thank you so much for having me on. My pleasure. So I want to get a a big and broad question out of the way, which is just (laughs) where do seashells actually come from? Seashells are made by the wondrous creatures that live inside of them, the marine mollusks. And these are invertebrates that live in the ocean. There are about 50,000 of them known, but scientists suspect that that's only about a third of those knowable. So another wondrous thing about seashells and the marine animals that make them is that we don't even know all of the ones that are out there. Wow. Wow. And yeah, I think something that's Something that struck me in the book is that mollusks are the second largest animal group in the world. Is that right? They are. They're the second largest group of animals behind the arthropods that include the insects. They are scooting and flipping and scooching all over the world from the deepest parts of the ocean to the highest mountain peaks. So The mollusks are all over the water and land. Mm. There are marine mollusks and what we know as land snails. But in approaching this book, I wanted to write about the kind of the classic seashell making animals. And, And of course, the idea behind that was my sense that people just love seashells. They're perhaps the most beloved object in nature. And I was, I was thinking about seashells as a way to really help people connect with the ocean and with what's happening to the world. I, I find that sometimes we environmental reporters and environmental writers, we, we tend to be writing for the choir. And I'm always trying to think about how to write for a broader audience. And that's, that's how I ended up deciding to write a book about seashells. Yes. Yeah, so, so when I think about seashells, as I alluded to in the intro, I think like 
oysters in a restaurant, I, I think of a conch, those big, beautiful shells. How varied are seashells out there? You mentioned that they're the shells that mollusks make, but how varied are there? What are some of the cool examples of shells? So that's a great question. I do think people often think of shellfish, right? Like oysters and clams and scallops. And there are entire books that have been written just about oysters. Or a, a friend of mine actually wrote an entire book about razor clams. So there have been a lot of books written about shellfish and individual shellfish. And so I wanted to explore some of that diversity beyond shellfish and also, you know, specifically to really hone in on some of the most beloved seashells from human history. So essentially, you can look at seashells as the gastropods. These are the animals that make a single coiled shell. And then there are the bivalves, which are those double-shelled animals like clams and like scallops. And then, of course, there are the cephalopods, which we know best for the unshelled animal, the octopus, who had a shell long ago, but evolved out of its shell, trading in its shell for for speed. The chambered nautilus is another animal that I write about. Squid also had shells hundreds of millions of years ago, and like the octopus, gave them up for speed. In, in that case, they're sacrificing defense for, for speed. Is it fair to say that mollusks that have shells use them for defense? Yes, that's a great question. So I interviewed an evolutionary biologist who's really known for his theory of the evolution of shells. And his name is Gary Vermey. He's at UC Davis. And one really fascinating thing about Professor Vermey is that he's blind and he sort of fell in love with what he describes as the beauty of seashells as a child when his fourth grade teacher brought back this trove of seashells and he wandered over to the windowsill and felt them. And he just has this extraordinary memory of being in fourth grade and feeling these ridges and knobs and smooth interiors and bumpy exteriors. And even from fourth grade, he started asking himself, why? What could be the reason? And over decades, he worked on his theory for the evolution of shells. And it is essentially all about defense. And what Professor Vermeer showed was that as fishes and crabs evolved stronger teeth and stronger claws for pinching, the seashells would become stronger and stronger and more varied and more elaborate over tens of millions and even hundreds of millions of years. So it's really a fascinating story. Hmm. It's an evolutionary race. It's an evolutionary arms race. As predators such as fishes and crabs evolved these fierce jaws and claws, mollusks evolved increasingly elaborate shells. And so heavy armor is their basic protection. But the really cool thing is that so many other things we love about seashells also evolved as protection and as defense. So, you know, sometimes when when you pick them up, they'll slam shut their little trap doors. Those are called the opercula. That is a defense. The terebrids or auger shells have these really narrow apertures so that predators can't pry into them. The cowries evolved these really smooth, glossy humps to make it hard for a crab to hold onto it with its pincher. Just so many things that they do, burrowing, oysters cementing themselves, a lot of things they do all come back to protecting themselves from their enemies in the sea. Right. How do they make these shells? Is it straightforward or is it very complicated? Yeah, it is complicated, but I'm going to 
try to explain it in a straightforward way. Okay. And that is the process of biomineralization. They essentially take proteins and chemicals from the seawater around them and use that material to build their shells. So the primary element in seashells is calcium carbonate and the animals take that from the sea around them and build their shell slowly as they grow. So they're basically secreting the shell at the edges and they do that over most of their lives. Although kind of like humans, they grow faster at different times of their life, Hmm. kind of like us, they grow really fast while they're teenagers and they grow a little bit slower later, but they're essentially, yeah, they're essentially adding to that shell all the time. So what was the first thought that you had that you wanted to write a book about seashells? Was it a connection in your childhood? What, what inspired you? Yeah, I'll, I'll, that's a really good question. And I have a very specific answer. I know the moment that I decided to <laughs> to write this book. Love it. I was visiting a lovely little seashell museum on Sanibel Island in Florida, which is kind of a mecca for seashell people. It's an extraordinary seashell island. And I was there giving a book talk, the Bailey Matthews National Shell Museum, and they had surveyed visitors, many of them tourists visiting Florida with their children. They wanted to find out how much their visitors already knew about shells. And I was just absolutely floored when I heard this statistic. They found that some 90% of the respondents didn't know that a seashell is made by a living animal. Wow. Most people thought they were some sort of a rock or stone. And I, I was really disturbed by that. And I, I kind of couldn't stop thinking about it. Mm. And I started to feel sort of obsessed, which is, you know, how that is. That happens to you as a reporter. Yeah. You become obsessed thinking about something and you just have to work on it. And that's, that's what I was doing. And, and so it just got me thinking about how separated we are from the natural world. And I, all these thoughts were swirling around and I really just started thinking about what a perfect metaphor that is for the ocean itself. Like we've always loved seashells for their beautiful exterior and kind of ignored the fascinating animals that build the shells. And it's really similar with the oceans, right? We've loved the oceans like a postcard Hmm. as this idyllic backdrop of life rather than the very source of life. So that's what got me thinking about it. Totally. And one of the things that I didn't really realize until reading this book is that seashells are essentially all around us, right? They're like in the building materials that we use to create massive structures like the Washington Cathedral, and they're even used to inspire the design of some of these buildings, which I I just thought was fascinating when you talk about Frank Lloyd Wright and other architects that used shells in their building designs. Can you just talk about some of the hidden or unusual places that seashells are in our everyday lives? So sort of in spiraling architecture and art and science, they really reveal the best of humanity, I think. That human ingenuity is an important part of the story for me. When I set out to do this, I started thinking about all the places that seashells are, right? And they're underfoot. In much of the United States, we're getting our drinking water from limestone aquifers underfoot. And I I think a lot about that. I think a lot about water. Because I write so much about water, I walk around knowing what's underfoot in aquifers. Hmm. And I love thinking about the limestone and the creatures that made that limestone. And so that's what I started thinking about was that we walk on a world of shell, right? Even the built environment, a lot of it is literally made of seashells. The Empire State Building, the Washington Cathedral, these are great buildings cut from limestone. And just to just to be clear, limestone is the result of ancient shells basically being compressed over millennia? 
Yes, that's exactly right. And it's a really hardy building material. So it has long been used to make human structures. And beyond that, of course, seashells just being as elegantly beautiful as they are and having such extraordinary shapes turned out to be models for a lot of classic architectural designs. So the minaret, the portico, the scalloped edge, Gaudis, vaulted rooftops in Catalonia, Frank Lloyd Wright's Guggenheim Museum in New York, Hmm. Jorn Utzen's Sydney Opera House in Australia. He credited the fierce-looking coxum oyster for that waterfront Hmm. beauty. So it, it really is amazing once you start thinking about seashells, where they are in the world and how they sort of surround us both naturally and culturally, really. Yeah. I just love this idea that that shells are, are kind of the homes for mollusks, but also in some cases also they house us. <laughs> yeah, that's a really lovely point. The major metaphor in this book is listening, listening to nature, mm. listening to indigenous voices, listening to science. But what you just articulated was always in the back of my mind. Mm. I'm writing about their home and I'm writing about our home. Is it also true that ground up shells are in toothpaste or (laughs) am I making that up? (laughs) You are not making that up. Shells are in toothpaste for the, again, for the the calcium carbonate, the, the same thing that helps make them tough. It's a good material for keeping our teeth clean. So the ancient Greeks ground oysters and used it on their teeth to keep their teeth white and clean. And um, some of the same reasons that Crest adds calcium carbonate today. So yes, you didn't imagine that. So also in our mouths. Great. (laughs) (laughs) Let's take a quick break. But when we're back... In her book, Cynthia Barnett explores some fascinating connections between seashells and commerce, including how seashells used to be used as money for much, much longer than you might think. That's after the break. So I will say one of my favorite parts of the book was when you laid out this link between seashells and money. As you write in the book, a small seashell called the cowrie was used as a form of currency for a long time. When was that and where was this common? Yeah, so the first worldwide currency was not crypto. It was a (laughs) gleaming white seashell called the money cowrie. And this is just a lovely, lovely little animal. It's a reef-dwelling algae eater. Mm in the genus Cypria. So these little shells were harvested en masse in the Maldives for a thousand years. Wow. Um, and they were used as money around the world. They were used as money all over China. This turned out to be a really important part of the book for me because shells, like I said before, the idea is to listen to what they have to tell us, not only to what's happening to the earth, but to how we have treated one another over time. And I was really fascinated by the money cowrie when I found out that it had been used as a major currency of the slave trade. So these shells were harvested in the Maldives. And I, I actually ended up doing a crazy thing, which was to follow the unlikely route of these money cowries from the Maldives to the coast of West Africa, where they actually purchased an estimated third of the enslaved Africans forced to the Americas. And to me, um, you know, these parts of the story are really important because so many times in science and even in the work we do in environmental journalism, you know, for, for too often, it was all about the animals or the environment or what's happening to the planet without right. enough understanding of what happened to people and putting people at the center of that story. So 
this was an effort to do that. And why the cowrie as a shell? Why was the cowrie used as the currency? Is there something particular that makes the shell so special? Yeah, so there are a lot of things about little cowrie shells that made them the perfect money. Hmm. For one, they're very uniform in size, so they were easy to count. They also packed up really well into ship ballast. You know, there's something you could put into a pocket or a purse and easily use like coin. They're really, they're really irresistible to hold. Like I have some here on my desk because it feels so nice just to hold them and kind of rub on them. Can you clink them together? I just want to hear what they sound like. So can you hear that jingling? Yeah. What do they, what do they feel like and look like? They are really small. They could fit on the tip of your pointer finger there at, at the first digit. Oh, wow. They have a wonderful little slit at the bottom and they're sort of toothy. And on top, they're really, really smooth and polished like porcelain. Huh. And they're just, um, yeah, they're just like totally satisfying to hold. In fact, as I, jingled them in my hand just now, it made me think of dice. And that made me remember they sound kind of like dice when they're clacking together. And they have that nice smooth feel of dice. And they have been used in games for time immemorial. So what I love about these shells, I mean, these shells as currency, they were not only the first, really the first valuable object ever traded, but you also wrote that they were used as a currency longer than any other single coin or paper money in history. That is wild. It is so wild. And I always have a little laugh when I hear the crypto people talking about <laughs> cryptocurrency as the first true global currency because cowries traded around the world in many places for more than a thousand years. They were definitely the first global money. You know, the other interesting thing about them is that they became more than money. They became really revered. They were revered before. That's part of how they began trading because people valued them for other things. They valued them as talismans and as charms to bring good health or to bring fertility. There are all kinds of cowries found in Egyptian graves and other kinds of graves in different parts of the world. So they were really revered before. Perhaps they were cynically picked up as money by traders who saw that they were of value to various indigenous people. Hmm. And do we have a good sense of, of the point in time when they became money? So there's a wonderful global historian named Bin Yang who has written an entire history of money cowries as currency. And it's really fascinating. And, and he found that Maldivian cowries were spending like coin in India as early as the fourth century. Hmm. So it started out as a small thing for small purchases and then it just kind of took off over time. So starting in the fourth century in India, then they move west to the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea. They actually spread to mainland Southeast Asia. They took off and they ended up being a major currency again for about a thousand years. I just wanted to return briefly to this kind of darker history that you lay out. As you write in the book, the money cowrie purchased an estimated third of the enslaved people forced to the Americas, what was happening there at the time? And, and were cowries themselves significant as a currency that facilitated such a large part of the slave trade? It's a really interesting question because the timing of cowries coming into West Africa is not entirely clear. Hmm. There were cowries native to Africa, but they weren't money cowries. So one interesting thing is that the farther away something is from where it comes from and where it's abundant, the more valuable it becomes. So there's been some really fascinating archaeology into cowries in Africa. And 
before the infusion of cowrie money into West Africa, the Yoruba people, for example, had this incredible uh, glass-making technology and manufacturing economy around glass beads. They were a form of trade. Uh-huh. And so early in the 17th century, there was this switch. Glass beads had been exported from Nigeria, and suddenly this phenomenal flood of cowries came in and began to fuel more of a market economy. So a people who had been living from uh, the things they made, again, their glass making and their manufacturing, like glass beads, cotton cloths and ivories and so on. Now we're dealing with the Maldivian cowries that were being brought in on the European ships. And this now replaces the earlier knowledge economy and helped fuel a market economy. And they eventually became the currency for every transaction in, in parts of West Africa, not every part. The interesting thing about that is that European traders generally would not accept calories for payment themselves. So that's when there was sort of this devastating collapse of the economy in West Africa. And that's sort of a more complicated story uh, that I got into in the book, but it's, yeah. but it's a really fascinating story. I want to now fast forward many decades to another story that you tell about the value of shells, more specifically the ones that laid the groundwork for the very large company Shell Oil. Obviously, it is one of the world's largest oil companies, and its logo is, of course, a shell. Is it true that this company is actually rooted in the sale of seashells? Yeah, so this is another fascinating story. Shell Oil's history dates to the early 19th century, and a Jewish curio shop owner in the east end of London, his name was Marcus Samuel. So in the 1830s, he was importing tropical seashells. Seashells had been really popular earlier, like in the 17th and 18th century. They were part of a craze among kings and queens and the elite. As like a collector item? Yes, collector's items. You know, they would build entire rooms devoted to shells. So in Victorian times, shells became um, a little more accessible to the middle class as there were more ships going out to the tropics and coming back and bringing in tropical shells. So this fellow named Marcus Samuel had a little curio shop in the East End and he sold seashells. Um, he sold them for what was called ladies work, like uh, Victorian women who had been somewhat idled by the Industrial Revolution and yet not able to participate. They were really into crafts, all kinds of shell crafts. And so he he sold shells for craft. But the big thing that he thought of that really made him pretty wealthy were these little seashell bejeweled gift boxes he thought of the idea of selling them as tourist items at the beaches all around the United Kingdom. So they were really, really popular. So the little shell boxes and seashells themselves made the family's first fortune. And then in the next generation, his sons, he had three sons, and they were still working out of Samuel's little seashell shop by the time the next generation comes along, the family were majorly trading with Japan and other parts of the East. And the son, Marcus Samuel Jr., is the one who ended up founding Shell Oil. And it, it's a longer story, but he ended up sending the first oil in tankers through the Suez Canal. He, he brought kerosene to Asia through the Suez Canal. And that first oil tanker he designed, he named the Murex. And in fact, all of the oil tankers that the company made um, were named for seashells in honor of the father. And um, that is a tradition that Shell Oil keeps to this day. A lot of tankers are still named after seashells and they have one right now 
in fact, called the Murex that carries liquefied hmm. natural gas to Asia. So basically, this is a family business and they're selling shells originally in, in these tourist boxes. That's where they make their first fortune. And then the family essentially developed trade partnerships with, with Asia. Was that also to sell shells or were the trade partnerships related to something else? Well, you you have to remember that the tropical shells were coming from Asia in the first ah. place and from the Indo-Pacific in general. So Marcus Samuel Sr. is the one who developed these terrific trade relationships with Japan specifically. So it was he who began trade with Japan and it started with tropical seashells, but he traded many, many other things. He is he is said to have sent the first mechanical looms to Japan. Huh. He imported porcelains and ostrich feathers. And it's yeah. it's kind of great to see the old logs of what he imported because they're just such wonderful curios. So it was the father who had made these really nice relationships with the merchants in Japan. And then his sons continued those relationships, particularly Marcus Samuel Jr., um, who was the middle son, but he was sort of the most adventurous. And he went to Japan um, and the little brother, too. They ended up going to Japan and, you know, continuing those good relationships that their father had built and used those to send some of the first fuel through the Suez Canal. I was going to ask, is it a scallop that's in the logo? What kind of sh what kind of shell is that? Yeah, the funny thing about the logo is that the early logo, the first logo that they had, it's like a homely little muscle, just hmm. like really boring. And the scallop is, you know, perhaps the most brilliant ever marketing symbol. The scallop itself, it's such a classic shape. It's been a beloved shape since yeah. the earliest humanity. That bright yellow scallop shell has become so iconic for shell oil that the company need not even use its name when it uses that logo. It's just super recognizable. You know, it's, it's incredibly poignant that a company that started out with a founder who loved seashells so much and imported them now is is trading in in a fossil fuel you know whose emissions are harming the oceans and creating acidifying seas that are in turn harming the seashells themselves and the animals that make them so that's kind of the poignant end of the story and the and the really surprising thing about the story Okay, we're going to take one more short break, but when we come back, seashells also serve as powerful indicators of climate change. How do rising emissions, rising temperatures, and ocean acidification affect seashells, the animals who make them, and the ecosystem? That's coming up after the break. So basically, the increase in, in CO2 emissions from burning things like fossil fuels produced from companies like Shell are not only warming the oceans, but increasing the level of acidity inside of them, which can make it more difficult for some shell-building organisms to actually build their shells or maintain their shells. How, how does that work? So the carbon dioxide we send into the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels has turned seawater about 30% more acidic than it was at the start of the industrial era. So that chemical change in the ocean has begun to limit the carbonate that mollusks use to make their shells. And acidic waters can also bore into some shells, pitting them or, or eroding them. So that's, wow. that's half of it. But the other half is the warming of the ocean. So mollusks are also threatened by, by warming and some parts of the ocean have already become too warm for the shell making animals. And a recent survey of mollusks that were once common in the Mediterranean Sea has started to find that 
the warmest parts of that sea have become too warm for the murexes themselves. So the murex were one of the most common animals in the Mediterranean Sea. They were the animals that the Phoenicians used to make the purple dye, to make royal purple. Hmm. There are parts of the Mediterranean now that have become too warm for the murexes themselves. And that too is ironic given the name of the very first shell oil tanker to go through the Suez Canal. Right. Um, That is a wild connection. So basically there's like this double punch essentially to some of these mollusks where you have both rising acidity in the oceans due to the release of carbon dioxide and also the, the heating of oceans also tied to the release of carbon dioxide. I mean, it's a very vivid image to imagine a shell starting to essentially disintegrate in a more acidic water, which it sounds like is happening to some small degree or could happen to some small degree. Yeah. So um, this research is more than a decade old. The scientist's name is is Nina Bednarik, and I heard her talk about these tiny little shelled animals known as pteropods. They're called pteropods or sea butterflies. And her research was showing very early on um, how the acidifying waters were, were starting to actually disintegrate pteropod shells or make them thinner and flimsier. And that research has continued. And now scientists all over the world see those kinds of impacts in pteropod shells. So I wanted to ask about one other dimension of this oil story. And I could be totally wrong here, but ancient shell building organisms that have been compressed over over millennia, are they what created oil reservoirs? So is there like even another side of the story? It is another side of the story. I mean, it is definitely all connected in this really profound way, except that it's not just marine mollusks, right? It's all marine organisms that ever lived. (laughs) And I, I actually opened the book not with marine mollusks, because when I was trying to figure out how in the world will I write about these animals that, you know, evolved 500 million years ago, where do I start? I actually needed to go back farther than that, because I wanted to know who made the first shells, like where did biomineralization come from in the first place? And so I went back a lot farther than 500 million years. I ended up going back a little closer to 800 million years and analyzing these organisms from 800 million years ago, which had been found in remote Alaska in the Yukon, some of the earliest evidence for biomineralization. So when you think about the fossil and fossil fuels yeah. that is more all, you know, all of the marine life that ever lived. Yeah, I, I'm a former energy reporter. And as a former energy reporter, I love that Shell is like the linchpin and, and a big part of the story. And I think, you know, a big part of the solution too. a lot of this is a devastating story, both on the human side and on the biodiversity side. But the other beautiful thing about marine mollusks is that they're these incredible survivors and they did make it through the five mass extinctions to survive today. And they, and they have a lot to tell us about survival too. So for many people, collecting shells isn't just about accumulating wealth, but collecting this unique and beautiful item. And you write in the book about this period and maybe it's ongoing today of of this wildly popular hobby of shell collecting. What did that look like? What and when was this happening? <laughs> yeah, so there's two really fascinating periods of kind of crazed shell collection um, that I write about in the book. One begins in the 16th and 17th century in the Netherlands, and it actually was around the same time. You've probably read. You know, every economic student has to read about the tulip madness among the Dutch, right? Yeah, yeah. When tulips became incredibly expensive and overvalued, the same thing happened with seashells. And actually, Rembrandt himself got caught up in the shell madness. (laughs) You had dilettantes 
in Holland paying more for a single seashell than they would pay for, you know, a famous Dutch master painting like a Vermeer. Wow. So it was a crazy time and it was known as shell madness or shell mania or concleomania. And people got very into collecting seashells and especially wealthy people and kings. They had curiosity cabinets, but sometimes entire rooms devoted to shells that they called wonder rooms. Mm. And they, they collected other curiosities as well. And that lasted for a couple of hundred years. And it sort of collapses in the wake of the French Revolution. Another shell madness happens in the United States post-World War II, and that was spurred by the number of American soldiers who served in the Pacific Hmm. in places like Palau and Guam and Hawaii and just places with incredible seashells. And they brought home tropical shells as souvenirs or keepsakes or brought them to their wives and moms and girlfriends. And that helped spark a great excitement for seashells that lasted for a couple of decades in the United States. So there was a great shell madness here. And Florida was a bit of a hot spot for that madness. People would make a pilgrimage to Sanibel Island and collect as many shells as they could. And it was really macabre because at that time, people collected live shells and they would just fill their car trunks with seashells to bring home to Chicago or wherever they lived. And I'm sure that smelled good. Oh, my gosh. There was a joke here in Florida that the best seashells to be found were just south of the Georgia line, because that's when families station wagons would begin to stink and they would have to stop. (laughs) and unload all the shells on the side of the road. But it was really this macabre time. And I remember some of this from my childhood too, like there were boiling pots. If you stayed in a Florida beachfront motel, there would be a little boiling station where everybody brought the live animals to just boil them and retrieve the shells. Hmm. And it was a big part of shell collecting culture. And that has really changed, you know, people who would have thought nothing of taking a whole trunk full of live animals, say in the 1950s or the 60s, would never do that today. So you would walk into a hotel in Sanibel Island off the coast of Florida and literally see a giant pot for boiling live mollusks, essentially. Actually, motels often had a little boiling station right in the room where people would boil their shells. And then lots of beaches, um, including down in the Keys, there would be huge drums on the beach where people would boil shells and retrieve them. And I, I've i got a lot of children's seashell books from that time, like 1930s, 40s, and 50s. And they're incredibly macabre in their descriptions of how to kill the animal inside. You know what's interesting? What I just thought of talking to you about all of this, we started out... The conversation I was telling you, how many children don't know today that a shell is made by a live animal? Yeah. Children in the early 20th century were, you know, killing the animals with ice picks and other means to get the shells. And this was all described in great detail Hmm. in children's seashell books. And there were I went back and read lots of stories in the New York Times and Washington Post. They would say, don't take a dead shell because it will just not be pretty enough. It won't be colorful or polished. You've got to get a shell alive for it to count. And then you would kill the animal. We've gone from children killing them to not knowing them at all. And maybe the next step in our own evolution is that we come to understand these animals and all life in the sea. (laughs) I I hope so. So you're describing this kind of second wave of shell craze. And you, you kind of started to get at this, but I'm curious, and this is more of a philosophical question, but 
Why do seashells or did seashells have such a grip on us as, as humans? Like, why were they so popular? That's a good question. I think that we are fundamentally drawn to beauty. And I, mm. I interviewed someone who works on Neanderthal uh, archaeology in Spain. So they know that Neanderthals collected not only shellfish for eating, but also empty shells for various things such as um, perhaps jewelry or as a cosmetic case or other little kind of holder. They know from some of the shell stashes or caches that have been found that they were very precise in how they collected the shells, um, like collecting shells with a little hole in the top or with some kind of uniformity or, or beauty. This is something that really makes us human and binds us, mm. I think, is this fundamental affinity we have for beauty and for certain shapes and spirals, you know, like a logarithmic spiral. There's something really mesmerizing about looking at the top, uh, like of a lightning whelk or certain kinds of conchs that just have this wonderful mesmerizing spiral. And it's, yeah. and it's something that was true, uh, a hundred thousand years ago. And it's, and it's true today. Yeah. And just to, I wanted to ask because most people who eat seafood, shellfish find it very difficult to figure out like what is good, what is bad. There's so much information out there. You just wrote a book on this. You mentioned potentially favoring things grown in aquaculture. What is your advice for like the average shellfish eater that wants to be sustainable in their eating habits? So I I grew up eating seafood and I also, you know, had experiences as a kid collecting conchs and eating conchs and I've eaten all kinds of seafood. And in the book, I, I'm kind of eating seafood along and along, but I'm eating a little bit less seafood along mm. and along and thinking about the seafood that I eat. So by the time I'm in the scallop chapter, this is a wild animal that we always have gone scalloping for every summer in Florida. But now that I know everything I know about wild scallops and their harvest, I don't think I'll ever eat another wild scallop. Mm. And I kind of approach this from that discovery point of view. Like we're all, we're all human and a lot of us are trying to do our best just trying to live more gently and trying to live with less. And part of that is learning about these animals and what is sustainable and what's not. So by the end of the book, I can really feel pretty comfortable eating aquacultured clams hmm, okay. and some other aquacultured shellfish that I learned about along the way. And there are other wild mollusks that I ate in the past that I would not eat anymore. So um, that's, that's really part of this is helping people understand how we can make these changes that we need to make to save species and ourselves. We're all in this together and we can do this. Yeah. So, um, the nice thing about shellfish aquaculture is that it doesn't pollute like many kinds of fish aquaculture and shrimp aquaculture. Shellfish, so some scientists call them the liver of our rivers, right? Because they really keep water clean. They're constantly filtering. And so they help keep water clean. They provide jobs. They are soaking up carbon from the oceans, they do a lot of wonderful things. So I do see a, a real future in shellfish aquaculture, and mm. it becomes part of conserving the oceans. But when you start scaling it up to the aquaculture operations that are, you know, starting to work around the world and to the changes that people are willing to make in their diets and their choices, I think we can find a lot of hope in that. And I love the example of you going hunting for or fishing for scallops and 
kind of having that realization in that moment that you didn't want to take any. And it almost seems like a perfect example of this kind of change in ethics, change in, in our understanding of our impact and how that can immediately in that moment having an effect on your behavior. It was like this moment that I was able to describe. I had been taking my children scalloping in the Gulf of Mexico since they were really little. I just remember filling up buckets of scallops and it was almost like picking berries and we loved it. And it was an important part of our family and raising our kids. And then a couple of years ago, I'm in the Gulf of Mexico with them (laughs) after knowing a lot more about the fishery and the scallops and what's happened to wild scallops. And I find myself with my underwater camera taking pictures of everything I see instead of gathering scallops to eat. Hmm. And it was a much more satisfying experience. And and the other thing that happened is that the kids also just stopped gathering scallops. They just weren't into it anymore. And they too wanted to look around at stuff and play and horse around. And there are just um, lots of ways to love the ocean. There are lots of ways to eat from the ocean that are sustainable. And I really think this story gives us hope that we can get there. That is a a great place to end. Before we wrap up, I just want you to describe for for listeners how scallops swim, because I think it is so cool. (laughs) Oh my gosh, it's so much fun to see them swimming underwater. They actually clap their shells. It's almost like, you know, when you see clams in the cartoons, they clap their shells and they, and they move. So they, when they clap their shells together, they push water out. They're actually pushing water out with their muscles and creating their, their velocity that way. And they clap along, but they do it while zigzagging. And so they're really fun to watch because it's like a football player making a lateral play. They're just zigging back and forth, trying to outrun their their enemies to take it back to the beginning of the conversation. Yeah. Well, Cynthia, thank you so much for, for taking the time to chat with us. This is such a pleasure. Benji, it was so nice talking to you about seashells. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Liz Kelly Nelson is the VP of audio at Vox. I did collect three live clams last year, which I love. Oh, it's absolutely (laughs) wonderful. I love clams too. And the fact that they bury themselves. Yeah, so cool. Keep enjoying those, those clams. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review it, and come back on Monday for a brand new episode. 